You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. And uh, this is uh, Why We Do What We Do. And man, it feels like we haven't been here in so long. I think it was in October. That we recorded last? I believe so, yeah. Wow. So we are recording this on uh, December 19th. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Man, yeah, we had so many banked episodes. We burned through them. (laughs) How was Europe? It was awesome. Yeah, so I got to go on a pretty crazy travel uh, expedition for about six or eight weeks. So I went to Arkansas, back to Reno, down to St. Pete, Tampa, Gainesville, Miami. All over Florida. (laughs) Yep. Lisbon uh, for a quick layover, and then Paris for the international conference, and then Prague, back to Lisbon, back to Miami, back to San Diego, back to Reno, back to Virginia, New Jersey, New York, and then Seattle for PodCon, and then back here. And this was like Um, in four weeks. Yes, (laughs) it was insane. It was a lot of fun. It's a weird time in life um, getting to do all those sort of things, but I would share that uh, PodCon was amazing. Um, Awesome. Maybe we'll do a little snippet for our Patreon users just on like lessons learned there. I want to do that. That was like a free shout out for PodCon. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. PodCon was amazing. I had to talk to the Hank Green, if anyone knows who that is. And so, yeah, I'll kind of pause there. We're going to drop in another episode. Um, yeah, so let's, I guess we can go ahead and get on track with what we're talking about today. And let's start a conversation about doing an assessment. So have you in your practice, do as a, you know, being a psychologist, have you had to do assessments? Yes. Um, they're different than like clinical psychology assessments. Yeah. So I've not been a part of those, but yes, it is an extremely important first step. Um, right. That's never talked about, I think like publicly much. Yeah. I think that there might be the impression sometimes that it's, you go in to see a psychologist and or a psychologist and you're just on the chair or you're just in the booth or I don't know what people's images of this necessarily is going to be, but usually and what there really should be is a first step where there's some kind of assessment tool and i mean the per- the point of a whole ass- of the assessment is to get a gauge on like where is this person coming from where are they at what, like where if we're doing talking about the clinical psychology realm and their concern is about depression then we need to do an assessment and see where are they at with relation to their depression uh, according to this assessment scale um, where is this person at you know whatever it's going to be whatever their problem is you're going to run at least a you know, one or maybe a few different types of assessment and get an idea of where this person's at. So, I mean, assessments are really important. And I personally became really interested with assessments and um, and the different types of assessments and the utility of assessments when I was working on my master's degree and have been sort of on the hunt, you know, out looking for what's the next big new assessment that's coming out and how is that going to address the problems of the other ones or what new niche is this going to fill where there wasn't a set, an assessment before? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'll interject there. Like there's, there's some things because I'm actually working on a project that's like that right now. Um, for people with dis- various disabilities, intellectual typically. And so like some other angles that come to mind and like why I got interested in them is like the, how do we allocate resources, right? So if there's public resources, like who really needs these? Yeah. Um, and cause they're, they're always limited, right? Like everyone presumably needs them, but like how do we actually allocate them? And like to what, what assessments are actually gonna give us the best ideas on 
who to start helping, how to help them, what sort of things actually do help them when we do figure out certain things with our assessments, right? Like it's a much bigger world, I guess, when I got interested in than I first realized. Well, that brings in the really important point of this is how you go about making a diagnosis and this is how you go about making recommendations for treatments and things like that. That like that assessment piece is, is so huge. So I'm glad that you, you mentioned some of that stuff. So we've been talking just so far about what assessments are and wh- why we use them. But we're really going to focus our attention um, now on a particular type of assessment that is sometimes referred to as a personality assessment, but we'll go more into the history of that. Oh, and then before we get into that, but as you had sort of said on yours, I'm teasing a discussion we're going to (laughs) have, is that that piece of it, of using the assessment for informing the decisions you make about that person, that's sort of part of why we do them and, and a standard of how you evaluate the quality of an assessment. So I'm really excited to get to this point where we're going to talk about evaluating the utility and the quality of assessments and the things that need to be there for it to be a good sort of assessment or test. So, so stick around. Yeah. <laughs> or luckily guess where to skip ahead. Yeah. So uh, the thing that we're talking about then that I have been dancing around this whole time so far is called projective tests. Um, And sometimes that means personality, but that's not really what the history is. And you might not have any idea what that means, but the most popular projective test is called the Rorschach inkblot test. Maybe just known as the Rorschach test, maybe just the inkblot test. Either way, the idea about this is that um, these are tests that are based on, well, let me describe this a little bit differently. In a projective test, the person who is uh, receiving the test, who's who's the participant who's being tested, I guess, Mm -hmm. they're gonna have some experience or some contact with a weird sort of ambiguous thing, stimulus of some kind. Often it's visual, not always, but often it's visual. And presumably, and then they have to talk about it, okay? So they're experiencing something weird, it looks weird, it feels weird, whatever it is. And then they are going to talk about their experience when they're feeling this and describe what they feel, maybe use some metaphors, that sort of thing. And presumably what they, according to this idea of projective tests, that's important to highlight there is this, uh, the assumption there is what they say will reveal these sort of hidden elements of their emotions, um, any disturbances and will reveal important characteristics about the personality. Okay. So that might be like something like I grab a piece of paper, right? And I I hold it in front and it has uh, an image that's kind of like a bunch of just squished up ink. And then I look at you and I say, Abraham. Yeah. Just what do you what do you see? Uh, yeah. Just, How do you feel yeah. when you see this? I, I think we'll get into like the methods of the test, but I think it is just like, tell me what you see. Mm-hmm. And then and then just go like, that's it. There's okay. no other like feedback from the person doing it, although they, they do go back through it, but we'll get to that when we sort of go over the methods. Um, okay. Yeah. So all of this, these people who are sort of just giving their overall impression of whatever ambiguous thing they're seeing, um, that's pretty subjective, right? I mean, obviously they're just sort of free saying whatever comes to mind when they're having this contact with whatever the thing is. And that's, that stands into that's, it's contrasted with something that's really objective, like a test that looks at what exactly are you doing or 
uh, one of the more common ones is these inventories where they'll usually have limited questions. Say, how would you respond in this situation? And here are some options. Or mm-hmm. you could write in your answer, but the question stays the same. And those are a lot more standardized, and um, their responses can be more carefully analyzed. And so they're more objective, or the ones that are just look at what someone's actually doing and just measure what they're actually doing. And that's, you know, one of the most objective ways of so, testing. Yeah. So the subjectivity or objectivity could be either from the perspective of the person who's actually completing it or mm-hmm. from the clinician themselves. Right? Yeah. B- but both. Yeah. Both sides. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then what happens? So in these productive tests, you're given something weird um, and the results or whatever that person says is then analyzed based on what they mean, I guess. Okay. Now, Let's get into the history of this a little bit. Now, the idea behind this has actually been around for a really, really long time. But uh, really, the projective tests that have become popular and well-known to most people and in psychology are rooted in psychoanalytic theory. And the underlying assumption to all this is people have a conscious like a consciousness and an unconsciousness um, and that those, there are these unconscious attitudes that they have. Okay. And so they come with a really heavy premise here, right? So the idea is like, if you ask questions in a straightforward manner, then you're going to have some sort of deliberately formulated or like kind of like socially correct answer replied, right? Yeah. So if I say, for example, have you ever thought about harming someone you love? Then the problem that they're saying is with that, that the person who's hearing that then can sort of say, I know what the wrong answer is. Yep. So they're going to sort of craft their answer. So they're somewhere between like truth and feeling all right, but like lying and like saying what needs to be said. Yeah. Like they're going to try and appropriate. Yeah. They're going to try and push the results towards this person's not crazy. They don't need to be locked away. They're not any danger to anybody that because they can sort of figure out uh, what's going on. So the last like, selective or like the more ambiguous pictures or whatever it is that we use should allow for more honest responses is the idea here yeah that's essentially what they're suggesting is because the thing that they're seeing rather than those questions that they might be reading or hearing is this really weird vague object it doesn't really have any form that they uh their answers are just like what they're seeing like it's it's not being pushed by the social cues i guess or the you know what would be a normal correct answer so yeah so they're trying to kind of just like remove as much as they can of this like cultural kind of level right that might be pushing you as to like what you should be saying right yeah that's sort of the idea um behind this which i mean you can hear that argument and it makes a lot of sense and we'll dig into some of the considerations around that so basically the idea then is that when people are just doing this sort of talking about whatever they're seeing and these ink blots or these pictures or whatever it is, they have to use their unconscious processes that are underlying what they say to put structure to the unstructured thing that they're seeing. Okay. And so this is um, considered an indirect measure of their thoughts and their personality and that sort of thing. All right. So the underlying... I already talked about this, but again, the underlying assumption here is that the person will class external stimuli based off of their person-specific perceptual sets. One thing I'm seeing in here that I sort of derive as you listen to this is that, okay, what they're basically saying or how I'm hearing what they're saying is that these unconscious processes are very important. And they're important because they underlie what what you say, what you do, okay? 
And they're probably more important than the conscious processes. And that's why we want to get to those unconscious processes. But they don't reflect those unconscious processes. They don't reflect the answers given to like those uh, those questions as they're posed, those sort of obvious ones. So if I were to say to you, like, do you have thoughts about killing someone that's a, uh, or harming someone you love, that would be a question you can hear. And so your answer to that does not reflect your unconscious process, even though that underlies what you say <laughs> and is apparently the more important. And so the other, so there's those two things. And then the uh, third one is that you can only interpret those unconscious processes if they are expressed to non-socially significant events like these ambiguous pictures. And therefore, the last thing, the fact that someone is analyzing their own answers to respond to those obvious questions is apparently not considered an important source of uh, significant social influence. Which, So what I'm saying here is that Basically, what it, what's happening is that even though someone is there administering the test and they're hearing the responses, and even if you look at something ambiguous and say, like, that looks like me beating my wife to death, then presumably they're not editing themselves saying that even though there's someone there who's listening. So the conclusion must be then that because this thing is ambiguous, they're more honest, and the fact that someone's there listening is not important as a social cue as it would be if they were asking them direct questions. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So yeah, I'm basically, I'm just trying to say that there are these four sort of underlying assumptions here. I mean, there's the other assumption that everything's unconscious and whatnot, but the other, the implications of this are that the unconscious has got to be the most important thing that when you answer questions in an overt way that your unconscious isn't participating, even though it's the most important thing, um, that you can only get to the unconscious processes when the thing is weird. And, um, the fact that someone's listening to you does not make you modify your answers, even though they're there listening to you Yeah, and you like, you still might anyway. So those are some of the assumptions that seem to be implicit in this. So let's jump into like what it looks like because you're like on the verge of that. Yes. All right. So let's go into um, the Rorschach inkblot test, probably the most famous. And where I plan to spend the most of our discussion talking about is on that particular test. And mostly because people know it, but also because all the other projective tests are pretty similar. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so we can – I'm just going to list those when we get there. But um, so have you seen these, like what they look like? Yes, from Armageddon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that is (laughs) – that is a fact. It's on that movie. I, I, I know that's done in the show notes, but <laughs> yeah, it totally is. <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, I don't remember where I first saw him, but that's like the first thing that pops in when we were like, we're going to do the Rorschach test. I was like, yay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but I largely don't know, like, I mean, I know generally, like I'm, I haven't had formal training in this area. Right. So I just know white pieces of paper Yep. and black spots and colored spots sometimes yeah. depending on. Like, I think there's a split, but what, yeah, what these look like basically is that there's a, a piece of paper. It's about the size of sort of a normal printer piece of paper okay. that you might see. It's kind of like in half by 11 ish. Yeah. Um, they're pretty big actually. I mean, that's, that's, so that's inches for our non-American yes. listeners. Um, but yeah, so if you think about like a, a, a piece of printer paper, it's about that size. So it's fairly large, the, the image that it's, or the, the piece of paper that it's on. Okay. And there are these ink uh, it looks like what happened is someone spilled ink and then fold the paper in half. So it makes a perfectly symmetrical image. Okay. As I understand it, when Rorschach developed this, he actually hand drew those himself, but they really look like they're just perfectly symmetrical blots of ink. 
which is why it's called an ink blot test. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and that's basically all it is. And so how this is implemented, uh, what it looks like, is the person who is administering this test, they're going to sit next to the person. And again, the, re- the rationale for this is they're trying to reduce those social cues and like they're trying to not be like a, a significant source of influence on the answers that they get. Yeah. And so they ha- they'll hold the cards out in front of the person who is receiving the test. And there are 10 pictures that they're going to see. Five of them are just black and white, just that black ink on a white background. And then five of them had some like color spots. And there's some of them where it's just like just red and black. And then mm-hmm. some have some like multicolors. I couldn't find anything about why that particular size. Um, it was 10 by 24 centimeters. Um, I couldn't find anything about why half of them in color and that sort of thing. So I'm not I'm not sure what exactly the rationale was there, but that's how the test is set up. Just 10 pictures. They're the sh- they don't look like really anything. I mean, you can easily look at them and start to imagine that they look like things like a butterfly for example is really common because butterflies are sort of these amorphous shapes that are symmetrical so a blob yeah. on a piece of paper is an amorphous shape that's symmetrical but otherwise um they don't really look like anything in particular they just look like blobs that are uh, that are there and then when the person is answering the answers that they give so what they say as well as how quickly they say it or how time how much time it takes to give their answer, those are all factored into analyzing the responses to come up with a description of that person. And there's two phases of this. What happens first is there is what's called the free association phase. And what this is, is is just me looking at it and just saying whatever comes to mind. Yeah, so this is the first time through, I'm just saying, tell me what you see. Tell me what you see. And I'm going to go through just presenting these pictures. Now, most of these, and I think in Armageddon, this is the case too. They sat across from the person. Mm -hmm. But according to the protocol I was looking at, they are supposed to be sitting next to them. So that's just depicted differently. It's Hollywood, man. Yeah. I guess camera angles and perspective. I'm guessing that's fair. that's a good point. Yeah. So um, the first, yeah, the first time through, they just talk about what they see. The second time through, they call the inquiry phase, and this is where they'll ask them questions. Why did you say that? Why did you focus over here? Tell me more about this thing that you said. Yep. And there's a lot of that sort of where they're just trying to get a little bit more to get wrap up their analysis on, and they the answers that they get are then analyzed based on three particular things. So that's content, location, and determinants, right? Yep. So content, like, I feel like anything can fall under here, but like- Basically. Yeah, okay. (laughs) So we've got here listed, like, does it represent some sort of animal, a human? Is How abstract is it? Does it remind you of nature? Yeah. Like, and anything, right? I mean, even- that's not, anything that's not location almost yeah almost yeah. anything that is a noun fits inside of this even i saw x-ray if, if someone mentions that it looks like an x-ray of something that's its own thing uh-huh. and i think that probably vehicle building any category you can come up with basically that as yeah as long as that's not location that would fit under its content so but you first organize it by what is the content area of the description they gave of this thing that they saw. Yeah. So like uh, if I were to say something like that reminds me of Reno, Nevada, like that falls under this content section. However, location, what we're talking about is like the specific area that they're looking at on the thing. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So then the location when they're analyzing, and I didn't say this before, but the person who's administering this, they're writing down virtually every single thing the person says, every stutter, every pause, every repeat, they're writing everything down that they say and anymore these are uh, largely done sort of digitally so they can type them quickly and whatnot but yeah all right so the yeah the first one is content and then the location one as you said is they're noting whether or not the person fit um, when their description focuses on just a part of the image or the whole thing 
the white space or an uncommon part of the image. So like, let's say you have something that looks sort of like a butterfly and the person looks at just that one little speck that's off to the side and they're like, that looks like a moon that's orbiting this thing. And they're like, okay, so that would be, they're, they're not using the whole thing. And I would assume, but I don't really know that is an uncommon thing for people to focus on. All right. So the next one's determinants, last one. And this one seems to catch whatever has to go into like the form and shape of the cards that is in a certain spot. So like the the overall shape of the ink blot or as uh, where color comes back in, right? So was it black and white? Did you focus on the uh, certain colors or certain shades? Yeah. So basically what might happen is if I showed you a picture of a butterfly and you talked about that looks like a moon that's orbiting this giant being, this godlike being, then I'm going to focus on, okay, you mentioned celestial things, which is probably a category. I don't know. And you mentioned moons as astral things. So those are our content. Um, our location is you only use part of the picture and it's an uncommon part. And our determinants are you focused on a little bit of the, the uh, movement of like a perceived movement of the part of the ink in relation to the other part, as well as the form. One of them looks like a planet and one of them looks like a celestial being. Um, and so those are the ways that are going to be broken down and understanding sort of what that person said. A celestial being. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just need a quick laugh, man. Yeah. <laughs> was, uh, sorry. Okay. So uh, this goes centuries back, right? Yeah. So tell, 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 tell the listeners more about that. Well, there there were a lot of people who have talked about, and I don't remember, but even Greek philosophers have specific have mentioned this idea that people's responses to sort of ambiguous things might reveal um, things about them. But this was never systematically implemented for a really, really long time until sort of Rorschach came along. And other people did sort of versions of something like this. But again, it just it was never systematic. It was never even formally like this is a test that you do. Although, you know, this has become, I would think, one of the most iconic things in psychology. As oh, you, I would guess so, too. Yeah. I mean, you see like a, a couch that represents psychology and then you see blobs on a page and that represents psychology. Yeah. And then, all right. So, yeah, this goes back pretty far. Um, I, I had a hard time finding the actual like originating date. And so Rorschach you know, when he started developing this, he was influenced by that stuff. You know, he was reading what other people had been saying about this idea. And so he sort of put it into action and, and made a test at it. And now he originally developed this, according to what I read, to be a diagnosis for schizophrenia specifically, not a personality test. And to his credit, it kind of actually works there. And we'll get to more about like where this works really well. But it, it really was not developed to say like, we're just going to characterize your personality. This was to capture those people who have what are often referred to as thought disorders or, you know, these mental disorders um, where you're looking for how they talk about things that are ambiguous to try and tease out where, where those thought disorders exist. And so uh, that was sort of the original intention of what he developed. Now. Yeah. And we'll get into more areas where it's been extended as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of bring back up the whole assessment thing. Like it's easy for an assessment to be kind of overextended quite quickly. Sure. I think. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have data on that, but I, I see it in our field, I think um, pretty quickly. Absolutely. Um, and, not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it's part of a, a lot of reasons, I guess. We don't need to get into it, but it's it's not his fault, is what I'm trying to get at here, right? Yeah, no, exactly. It's you know, it it is what it is. It it turned out to 
people tried to apply it in more ways and different things and they modified it. And there were a lot of criticisms about this test, how it was used, uh, the way that it was implemented. And we're going to get into those, but suffice it to say for the time being that a guy came along um, whose name was Exner. I want to say it was John Exner. I might be making that up. Um, and he developed what he called the Rorschach Comprehensive System um, or RCS or just Comprehensive Comprehensive System. I've seen a couple different names for it. Um, but yeah, Exner came along and what he did is he created a basically manual for how to do this and really more systematically analyze data from the tests. And, you know, there were there are a number of things I'll get into when we start talking about some of the critiques about this test. But I mean, he really had noticed that this was being done very differently by people around the world who were using it. They, you know, and what was supposed to be an assessment that could help reveal things about people, whether or not it was supposed to be diagnostic of schizophrenia, or even at that time, maybe being used for assessing personality types, people were just using it very, very differently so that it made it seem like a weaker tool. And it was. So he really tried to address this by uh, standardizing at least the way that data um, collection was done, as well as some more standards around how to implement it as well. Okay, now, as I mentioned, there are lots of projective tests. There are hundreds of projective tests. And so let's go through some of the more notable ones. All right, so there's the Holtzman ink plot. Yep, this is basically this a very similar idea, but it includes a lot more pictures than just those 10. What about the knotted trees? Yeah, so one thing that came up is what about people who are blind? Like this is an ink blot test, but if you don't have any vision, then you're not going to be able to report on this. And so there was this idea of where trees will grow these sort of knotted outgrowths. They'll have them put their hands on those knotted outgrowths and then talk about in a very similar way what they sort of experience using those metaphors. Like it looks, it feels like a, and then give some ideas. Yeah, which I will say as an aside, it's really cool to adapt to people's uh, needs in those yeah, situations, totally. right? Yeah, I think, I mean, um, it, was, it was a very creative idea to do that for yes. sure. Yes, comma, keep, keep following the data though. Yeah, um, <laughs> yes. Uh, clouds, tell me about that one. Well, I mean, if anybody's ever laid on their back and looked up at the sky and said, hey, it looks like a duck or whatever it is that you think you see. <laughs> I don't know why I went with duck. But, you know, people who look up in the clouds and they, and they see things, that was a very similar idea. And actually, this is another one of those predates a lot of this that people have been talking about what clouds look like and potentially then what they say reveals something about them every time i look at the clouds i just see water <laughs> <laughs> all right there's the <laughs> there's the thematic, <laughs> there's the thematic i was watching way too much uh uh, like my brother and brother me sort of stuff yeah. at PodCon. So it's probably going to start getting dropped in here a little bit. That's those funny little jokes. That's hilarious. Um, so how about thematic apperception? Am I say that right? Yeah. A thematic apperception test also referred to just as a TAT or TAT. And this is basically, there's a picture of people um, or some kind of scene. And then the person is just supposed to describe what they see going on on the scene. Now, this is obviously a lot more structured than in a totally ambiguous shape, like a cloud or an ink blot or a tree knot. But the the idea is still the same that there's nothing in the scene that's so clear that anyone will look at it and give the same answer. You could really interpret it a lot of different ways. And so this one is supposed to be that the person looking at it is going to sort of come up with the narrative reflective of their motivations and their conflicts and their own sort of subconscious processes um, that will then influence what they say about how they interpret what's going on in that situation. All right. Now we have draw a person. Which I ran into this one. Sounds like it's just uh, drawing stick figures. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's what it sounds like. You draw a person. There's not much more to it. 
Um, okay, the, the animal metaphor. Okay, this is one I had not actually heard of until prepping for this episode. I have not either. And it's, I, I wasn't really understanding it when I was looking it up. It, the way that it's described is that someone creates a story and then they interpret their own personal significance to that story. And I, I would love to say more about that, but it was just, it was really weird and I wasn't sure what to say about that. That's so. what our listeners are for. If you can find that, yeah. I will mail you uh, personally 10 stickers for why we do what we do. <laughs> Help us out. <laughs> sure. Send us, send us an email. Let us know more about the animal metaphor projective test. Uh, any, any evidence is cool. Uh, YouTube, a paper. Sure. Yeah. Anything you link. got. It's all cool. Um, okay, sentence completion. I mean, yeah, that's what it sounds like. Start a sentence, see where it goes. Um, we've done similar things like this sometimes where it's telling a story and you say, mm-hmm. I was camping. And and then mostly the idea is just to get people talking and then use that as an opportunity to help them develop articulation or um, bring in different concepts and stuff like that. Yeah. All right. So then there's picture arrangements. Yeah. So uh, my understanding is you take a bunch of different pictures and then you have to put them in a particular order. It's yeah. not necessarily very clear as to like, is there a right or wrong order? But yeah. then you get them to kind of talk about why they put them in the order that they put them in. That's exactly it. You nailed okay. it. That was a great, a great summary. Uh, what about word association? This is, yeah, this is a common one. This was largely developed by Carl Jung, um, who I'm sure will come up in other episodes. He's a very famous, well-known psychologist of the psychoanalytic tradition. So I see a friend's note under this. this is like Friends, a TV show? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, word association, basically, um, and let's just do one real quick. I haven't thought to do it, but I'm just going to say a word and you just tell me what comes to mind. Okay. okay? And part of me coming up with this will be its own word association. But um, I'm going to say... America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, burrito. Chipotle. Okay. Um, happiness. Too uh, long. Took too long. <laughs> How about okay. T-shirt. Uh, I don't know. Blue. <laughs> All right. So basically the idea here is that uh, you're just doing the like whatever person says constantly about things is also supposed to represent, you know, if it's right there and you're not doing the editing, scripting, thinking about where I said too long. Yeah. It's uh, then it's supposed to be. um, And I believe I might actually be wrong about this, but I believe that there was a friends episode where they did something like this, where they just said, you know, tell me the first thing that comes to mind and then like turkey, Thanksgiving, girlfriend. And then the person supposed to say something that has some meaningful significance was like, oh, I didn't even know that was there. A lot of people often are more frustrated than they are, uh, have epiphanies about this, I guess. And then the last one is called graphology. And this is one where it is a projective test in that, uh, sorry, graphology refers to uh, writing, like handwriting analysis sort of stuff. And uh, it refers to... Um, it's the one with Ross's denial episode six or oh. episode three of season six. Oh, thanks. Sweet. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's great. Found it. So yeah, graphology, this idea that uh, people's handwriting and the way that they form their letters says something about them. This has been quite thoroughly debunked by research. So this isn't really used all that much anymore, but there are those people who put stock into things like this. I mean, there's still people who believe the earth is flat. So there's that. <laughs> this is, Graphology is the flat earth of <laughs> projective tests. <laughs> God, we're going to get some hate mail on I that know. one, man. Yeah, probably. We are. All right, so I'll reply back to hate mail with uh, with with stickers of the podcast as well, <laughs> with, with a little heart. Yeah, we love you, even though you hate us. All right, so we already mentioned where this shows up a little bit in pop culture. You mentioned Armageddon, Friends, brought up Friends. 
Um, I also mentioned this is one of the most iconic symbols of psychology that exists. And there's a few others. Have you? Did you see the movie Watchmen? Nope. Oh, man. I'm, I'm bad at this. I should never be surprised by this anymore, but it still bums me out. Yeah. Um, one of the characters on there, his name was Rorschach. And that was like his, his superhero name. That wasn't like his actual name. And uh, he had this mask on, and the mask had these symmetrical sort of ink shapes that moved that were supposed to sort of reflect sort of his thoughts and emotions. Which was, uh, it was a really creative way of depicting it. I thought the movie was pretty fun. Um, there's another movie. I actually didn't see this, but it was called The Master. I assume you have not seen this either. No, I have <laughs> okay. not. Sorry. And uh, I, I didn't look up a whole lot except to see that this one did have a lot to do with the idea of the Rorschach ink plot test. And then the last one that I found was um, Andy Warhol. He had created some art that was specific, specifically inspired by the ink blot test. Um, and if you look up some of them, they're a lot more complex than some of the ink blots, but there's some pretty cool pictures. If you just Google Andy Warhol ink blot, you'll see some pretty neat stuff. Yeah. Google pages just go for days on it. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's bring in, We've already talked about sort of what this is like, some things that are like it, how it's done, all that sort of stuff. Let's talk about where this is really sort of winning. Okay, so you you talked about schizophrenia. Yeah. Right? Like, dive into that a little bit more. Yeah, so one thing that was discovered in a lot of the research that came out of people being interested in the Rorschach inkblot test is that people with serious thought disturbances, such as schizophrenia and other thought disturbances, they will say these really completely bizarre things like it looks like the larva of an alien if it exploded inside of a microwave made of rainbows and you're, <laughs> you're gonna hear something like that and go uh, okay and then show them the next picture and so it's those really bizarre statements that often do reveal those people who are having uh, that would merit a diagnosis like schizophrenia and that sort of thing. It, it's actually pretty sensitive to those types of people. Interestingly. So I mentioned it's been extended into areas like depression, thought disorder, narcissism, and those have actually been shown to be overextensions of it, though. Yeah, well, and it also will overdiagnose that. So people who um, who do not have depression might show up as having depression if they were to take this particular test and same thing for uh, narcissism and, and other thought disorders. Yeah. And we'll, we'll link that source in there. 2001 was when a lot of that research was done. Yeah. Just going back to this idea of that people who are having thought disorders would see these and then say something really bizarre. They would kind of likely say something like that, regardless of whether or not you put some weird shape in front of them. They're probably saying that in, in everyday sort of conversations, um, of these really weird sort of stuff. It might be a little bit more difficult to tell, but if they're having these serious thought disturbances, then probably, usually, they're not doing a whole lot of that self-editing and saying the socially appropriate thing they're supposed to be saying. So, yes, it will detect it, and probably other things would too. <laughs> <laughs> and so another point on this and this actually was brought up a similar point we brought up when we did our episode on the on the lie detector test the polygraph is that people who are really good clinicians and they have excellent sort of clinical judgment skills that have been developed over years of practice they're going to derive a lot more from this test and without the test than someone would just by sitting down with sort of the the key on how to go through and decode these things would be able to do. So again, this is like people who are already really great clinicians, they're going to be good at detecting this and they might use this tool, but honestly, who knows what they're actually getting out of that tool. Anyway, they might find that their practice is aided by use of that tool. And if they're great clinicians, great. That's something that works for them. Cool. More power to them. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's bring this into a little bit back into this kind of like science preview, but also just in the kind of link it back to assessment. Right. So we're in a day in which a tweet can carry a heavy load. Social media influencers are rampant. There's all sorts of things that might tell you like why you should pay attention to something or why you should believe in something. Yeah. And when it comes to assessments, like how do we actually tell which ones are actually going to inform clinical practice and help somebody at the end of the day? Yeah. So like, how do we measure the, the utility of one of these things, right, including yeah. this Rorschach test. Yeah, we said we'd bring that back. I'm glad that you got us on track with that. There's there's a few critiques about this one specifically, but let's, yeah, let's start at, in general, when you're doing an assessment, what are those criteria that tell you the quality of the assessment? And there's three main ones I'm going to go over. And the first one is that it's consistent. And what that means is every time you implement that assessment, you get about the same result. So let's say, let's go with a medical test. Let's say I administer a test that says you have high blood pressure. Presumably, if this is a good test, if I come back and I administer it again or someone else administers it, it's going to show about the same thing, still have high blood pressure, still about the same range. Pretty consistent test, right? So those consistency tells me this test is working the way it's supposed to work because it is actually, it is consistent. Like the same, nothing's changed. The test should not change. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's one important measure of a good test is it's consistent. This is also referred to as reliability, but I think consistency is just, it makes sense. It's yeah, I dig that. Yeah. All right, the next one is that the test measures what it's supposed to measure. Okay, and so let's say, um, again, blood pressure. If I use a tool that um, hooks up to you and it tells me what your blood pressure is, then that's great. That tool is exactly measuring what it's supposed to measure. But let's say I'm like, I want to know exactly how much fat is in my food. What I'm going to do is I'm going to bring out my little color wheel. I'm going to see what color my food is. And I'm going to try and figure out what the fat is in my food based on the color wheel. If it was just that easy. I know, right? (laughs) So uh, color wheels don't say anything about fat because food can be any color and you can change the color. So that would not be a good measure of the fat content of food because it it doesn't measure what it's supposed to measure. It measures the color of the food, great, but that doesn't tell me anything about the actual nutritional content of the food, right? So that's important about a test is that the test is actually measuring what it's supposed to measure, true in psychology as well. So if it's measuring the unconsciousness, (laughs) it needs to be measuring the unconsciousness. That's right, exactly. And if it's measuring something like depression, it really should be measuring depression and not some other disorder that one might have. And the last one is that it's standardized. And what that means is that the person who's giving the test or anybody who gives the test is giving it in the same way. So again, let's go back to that blood pressure example. We've been using it. Let's say one person, they wrap it on your arm. The other person's going to wrap it around your nose. Someone else is going to tie it around some of your hair. Someone else might put it around your ankle. And then they end up getting different results because they're not doing it the same way. Now, I don't, I'm not a doctor. Um, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't know how to give these tests. It's entirely possible that the test is so good that no matter where you put it on someone's body, it will work just the same. But Which could still be standardized and like only doing these areas. It totally could be. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, That's not to say that implementing it in these different ways is not necessarily standardized. It's that there is a consistent way of going about doing this. Like imagine if I was like, I'm going to take your blood pressure and then I put it on my own arm. That's not going to tell me very much about you. That tells me I don't know how to implement this test or that this is nobody, you know, if that's just something people do, there's not a consistent way of doing it. So standardized is useful because again, it rules out the bias of the test came out with different results, different results because we did it differently the second time and the third time than we did the first time. Yeah. So standardization also, I don't know if we hit this, but um, 
it is like an arbitrary decision at some point, right? Oh, totally. But um, the fact that it's all agreed upon allows us to get at those other levels and then kind of reset our standards. Yes. Right. That's totally, yeah, I'm so glad you said that. I didn't even think to include that. We kind of hit on those things sometimes and like, yes, it is, but standards work of the whole community is looking at them and like also critiquing them as a whole and then moving forward with new standards in place. Yeah. Cause yeah, as you said, the standards can change. That's fine. As long as again, as you already pointed out, <laughs> you know, we're all on the same page and that we then follow what those standards are. I like to think of it as like you're minimizing like uh, potential things that could be making it harder to know what's actually going on with your tool. Yeah, I when mean, you do it's, those sort of things. yeah, you're ruling out user error that, you know, the general variation that might occur when people try to approach this a problem when they have different learning histories about how to solve problems and maybe that problem more specifically. Okay, so let's link that discussion to our what we're talking about right now with the projective tests. Okay. <laughs> All right, so when we first started talking about the Rorschach inkblot test, and again, we're really talking about projective tests, and that was just the one we focused our attention on. Initially, the scoring was really subjective, so much so that you would often get different results for the same answers um, by asking different administrators. So they would Ooh. score it differently. So that's a problem. Um, so it lacked that consistency. It wasn't reliable. It also required a lot of assumptions of just saying like, okay, Let's say this person talks about the white space. What does that mean? Well, the person who decided what white space means, they just kind of made that up. That was an arbitrary decision, right? And so there's a lot of assumptions about how to make interpretations of how something was related. And so based on that, like the, the fact that it's so subjective, both in the person who's taking it and the person who's giving it and the, per and the way that it's scored, again, initially, this was a little bit corrected, um, it, it doesn't even begin to meet this first criteria of that it's consistent, right? Correct, yeah. All right, so that's the first one. Second, as one study put it, quote, the overwhelming majority of scores from the test were unrelated to personality traits. Okay, well, if you're trying to measure personality, that's a problem for this as a test. In fact, oh, end quote, back after I said traits. In fact, careful research has not found evidence at all that the assertions about what a, uh, answers represent are actually correct. So for example, there was a assumption built into this that if someone described in their inkblot that they were seeing or whatever it was that they were looking at, if they described uh, a mirror of some kind, so something was looking in a mirror or they were looking in their own kind of mirror, that that was supposed to be reflective of narcissism. But when they do research that looks at this in other ways, they really found that that wasn't the case. The mirror didn't necessarily indicate narcissism. It might for some people, but it didn't for others. And it was so hit or miss that it, it wasn't at all predictable. So this is another problem where we're talking about it's not actually measuring what it's supposed to be used to measure. It's not measuring what it's intended for. And so with respect to personality and other psychological disorders, such as anxiety and depression, um, it fails to meet the second criteria of a test is good when that test measures what it's supposed to measure. Because in this one, it was just sort of arbitrarily decided what some of those interpretations and assumptions would be. And then it was never like confirmed f for a lot of these things. And that when good research was done, it actually showed that those assumptions were, were kind of baseless. They, they weren't really, uh, they weren't supported by the actual evidence. And then the third one. <laughs> so for this one, it, it wasn't until the Exner system that was actually consistently implemented. So 
uh, prior to that, there was at least five major types of variations in implementation. So the fact that nothing was actually standardized makes it now three out of three of our criterion that were not hit correctly, right? Yeah. So I had a little little bit from uh, a book that people may be interested in looking for more on these sort of types of ideas um, and content called The Great Ideas of Clinical Science. And it's an edited book by Lillenfield and O'Donohue. And they mention a little bit on this specifically. So I'll quote this. They say, during the 1980s and 90s, the depression index of the widely used comprehensive system for the Rorschach ink block test became widely used as a measure of depression. However, although the depression index achieved broad acceptance among psychologists who worked in clinical and forensic settings, systematic studies eventually demonstrated that it bears little to no relationship to depression. So another problem here doesn't seems to be not useful for measuring personality seems to be not useful for me- uh, not useful for measuring depression yeah i mean this is just looking at it's you know what one thing that we can be saying here to to try and take the the charitable side of this yeah because we're hitting pretty hard yeah we are is that you know maybe this research is is just this was applied too broadly and the research is sort of narrowing the scope of where this should be used. Okay. And so, yes, it is a thing that was really, became really popular. It's really well known, really well known for being a personality test. turns out not a good personality test. Also not great for depression. Maybe we just need to go back to the thing that it was sort of intended for, which was the, um, the schizophrenia one, which again found that it was useful in detecting those disturbed thought patterns. And on that note, um, and we sort of mentioned the overdiagnosis thing, but because of the way this is set up in its scoring, it tends uh, they tended to find a increased level of sensitivity to this, even when there wasn't a pathology. But I remember, I just remembered, I have I have more to say about that in a moment. So <laughs> let's move on. So that we talked about those three things: that a test should be consistent, it should measure what it's supposed to measure, and it should be to some extent standardized so that it's being implemented the right way. Okay, but there's another one. And this is one where let's say, so they even make the argument in here. The purpose of this is that it specifically does not constrain the responses of the person. So it's sort of kind of meant to be fuzzy and subjective. And that's where you get the truth and the honesty so that they can do those real in-depth explorations. So maybe it doesn't meet those criteria. It's not consistent. It's subjective. It doesn't necessarily produce the same results, but... If it's the case that this test were to be really, really good at diagnosing a problem and prescribing a treatment that would be useful, or let's say, or like maybe it's not great at diagnosis, but it's really great for prescribing a good treatment for a problem, then it has the thing that we call clinical utility, right? So that means that it, even if we don't, it doesn't really work in that really rigorous testing way. Mm-hmm it still is helping people. Like we don't understand why it works. We just know it works. It's like, yeah. it's like anesthesia. Um, weirdly and frighteningly, people don't really know why anesthesia works, but we know that it works. We know that there's a certain level at which it will, it will kill you. And a certain level at which it will just knock you out. And there's a fine line in there or maybe not fine. I don't know, but there's a, there's a, a place in there where it's safe to use. It's similar maybe to this, that it's like it's uh, with, with clinical utility. It's um, it's how well it works. Right. I mean, let, let's just explore that. This particular test, the the Rorschach inkblot test, and I'm pretty sure the other projective tests as well, they don't actually do any diagnosing. They don't account for behavior. Yeah. Um, And most importantly, it doesn't even prescribe any kind of treatment or therapy to follow up on that. So it sort of fails those three criteria of what makes a good test and then fails what I often think of as being the most important one, which is how useful it is. 
Yeah, and I would I would also vouch for like the most useful one is the one is the most important, right? Yeah. Like I need something to help the people in front of me right now. Yeah, absolutely. If this isn't helping, uh, much less the other three, which are just as important, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, like, what are we doing? Like, I need something in the moment as a clinician helping somebody. Right. And so, as I, as I mentioned, this was so sensitive. It looked like people were showing up as requiring a diagnosis when they actually didn't. And as a matter of fact, there was some study. I, I, I didn't write it in here because I wasn't planning on going in depth on it, but it specifically showed like they took these college students and most of them showed up as being depressed according to the projective test that they were taking. And then when they were further assessment was done, it turns out that they were all perfectly normal, like not even one of them qualified for this. So it gives the illusion that this is a really sensitive test that is great at picking up on these disorders that are sort of underlying and hidden mm-hmm. while it actually over pathologizes people they don't actually have a diagnosis they don't need services that are already being strained by the number of people who do need services and the lack of people who are there to implement those services so it can create almost like a bottleneck of people who are in the group of people who are seeking services but it turns out they don't actually need them because they don't warrant a diagnosis Okay. And that brings up one other thing that comes to mind, which is uh, the clinician's behavior. And this isn't to say that that it's their fault, but like they are a factor in this. So what do I mean by that? Like there's this idea of the illusionary correlation. Essentially clinicians, like all individuals (laughs) are going to be prone to things that are going on around them, right? Like our behavior of implementing these things and helping people out is a part of the clinical situation. Does that make sense? Sure. And so this idea of the illusionary correlation uh, is that it's defined as uh, the perception of a, st- a statistical association that does not exist or a stronger statistical association than is actually present. And so I look at this as there's factors that we have to think up that are influencing our behavior in the moment on top of the ones we're typically already thinking about. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It's even more, a little more meta there. Like this illusionary correlation, like some people think it might be this extension of our propensity to actually detect patterns in like random data. So when we see these Rorschach tests being implemented and we see these certain patterns, like maybe this sort of behavior of detecting these patterns were useful and adaptive for helping us make some sort of sense of our worlds, making some sort of sense of our worlds at some point in our lives. Um, But it could actually lead us astray in circumstances like this. So I kind of question like, is that what happened with these? Right. I do about how much of the clinician's behavior, right. Right. From other reasons were being influenced to kind of chase these data streams that actually turned out not to be clinically useful on top of valid and reliable and standardized. I think that's fair. Um, So yeah, I don't know. Just kind of like a, a little more to kind of add here. All right, so let's go ahead and start heading toward our conclusions here. Um, And so one of the discussions I like to bring into sort of understanding how and why people might have certain answers to these, it's there is some relation here to, um, as we had discussed in our episode on subliminal messages, this concept of priming. And that is that when people come to these pictures, they they already have some kind, uh, they're being exposed to something. And they're also in a particular setting that is going to make it so that they're more likely to see or feel or think something based off of what happened right up until the point that they start answering. Okay. That can include things that the uh, person sitting across from them says. Uh, It could be the way that they say it. It could be even the way that they're dressed. All of those things might be these really sort of minute details that contribute in a way to what is being said and is therefore not really 
it's never going to be this pure quote unquote test of what's going on for people. We're constantly being influenced by the things that are around us, whether or not we can acknowledge what those variables exactly are. Okay. And so one way of thinking about what might be going on, in addition to the fact that there's all these things, is that we have a particular uh, learning history of our language with respect to how we identify particular things in our environment, right? So if you're really used to seeing shapes that look like a butterfly because you study butterflies, then when you look at something that looks like a butterfly, it would make perfect sense of the first thing out of your mouth is, hey, it's a butterfly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it might be that the exact opposite happens where you're so used to seeing butterflies that you know everything that is not a butterfly. And so you look at that and say, hey, that looks like a moth. You know, it's just worth, you know, the fact uh, trying to account for the fact that what people say is going to be a product in a way, one way or another of what their language has allowed them to develop up to that point. Someone who has a really limited vocabulary, they're going to say much less, uh, at least much less in a varied way than someone has a really who has a really extensive vocabulary. Right. And it's just and, and also just your general education history and your learning history and the rationale you bring to things when you think about them, that all of that's going to come to bear. That's not necessarily these underlying psychological hidden processes, but are in fact a complex developmental history of how you use your language to think about things. Does it make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So basically what's happening when you're trying to analyze their answers then is you're sort of trying to reverse engineer through an indirect process, how someone sort of arrived at that language that they have. And to me, this is sort of like, trying to discover why a Lego building has a particular shape by just taking it apart. And you're like, okay, I see this Lego building. I'm going to tear it in a bunch of pieces. Why was it shaped like that? It was shaped like that because it was built that way, mm -hmm. right? The, the person says the things that they say because their language developed that way in their current circumstances yeah. or their, you know, their historical past circumstances. So we've learned those kind of associations in the past. And that has what has led to those answers. I think it, it's very, I don't want to say naive, but it's it's really overlooking the most obvious variables to say like, oh, you must be saying that because of your subconscious conflicts. When what we can the the first thing we should look at is well, what how, what has this person's experience with this been? And maybe there is a case that like they've never seen anything like this before. And so now what we need to look at is what's the most similar thing they've seen that has had them talk about it in this way. And so you might start to get some of these like really the really creative ways of talking about things, at least for that person, but you always will be able to trace it back to what have they, where have they been up until this point where that's going to be the, the thing that helps me understand what they're saying. And that is going to be the more direct way of interpreting it as well. <laughs> so again, it's just sort of like, why go through this weird sort of reverse engineering indirect step to, to make all these assumptions and inferences about that when, when there's a, a much more direct way of going about it. Another way that this kind of shows up is so people who do like marketing for businesses and stuff, they will often do these things where they'll show people images of their brand logo and they'll say, tell me what you think, tell me what you feel. And they're essentially doing this um, test to see how do people respond to this. But what's kind of weird about this is that the brand itself creates the association to the logo in the first place. So it's not like people are out there just sort of freely associating to logos as if they have no experience ever seen a logo before, or they have no, they've never seen colors or shapes before. Or they've never, you know, whatever it's going to be, maybe it's not visual, but it's like an auditory jingle. They're going to come to it with some sort of history that they have. And so like the, the association that that brand develops with its product and with other brands, like all of that stuff is going to have 
um, is going to have more to bear on how people experience their logo than just the fact that the logo exists. So I guess what I'm trying to say is people will look at these situations where they're sort of trying to see how people react to things. And then I guess they sort of have the assumption that that that's just an implicit reaction everyone's going to have to it, or at least sort of an average one. When I'm sort of making the point, like they got that reaction from somewhere and they got that reaction from some kind of association. So being careful about how you develop your brands, like don't make a brand that looks like a swastika if you don't want to have it associated with things like that. That's, you know, that already exists in sort of the public consciousness, (laughs) you know, but other than that, the brand that you create and the logo you design as long, you know, you sort of tailor that to what's going on in the current culture and then what you want to convey about your brand and then what people think and feel about it will be developed as your product shapes their association with that logo and with that brand. And I mean, it is worth considering what other pe- other brands already do, but I'm just saying it's kind of weird. And it doesn't mean that it's a bad idea to see how people respond to that and sort of get your finger on the pulse. Again, maybe you've, for whatever reason, have never seen a swastika and you make your brand look like a swastika. And so you show it to people and they're like, yeah, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, then that informs, you know, again, it's just, it's somewhat conceptually flawed to sort of have this idea that, I'm going to go figure out what these brand associate or these logo associations are that people have so that I know what's the best one to use. I'm saying like shape that up, deliberately create the association you want people to have. And again, it's not a bad idea. It's just, it's kind of conceptually weird. Reminds me a little color psychology too. Yeah. You need to dive into that. Yeah. Yeah. Like the whole, I remember um, in, in high school, some of my friends were, they were so amazed and I probably was too, I'll just be honest, but they were so amazed by the fact that campaigns like president, like um, not presidential. I mean, they do too, but any kind of political campaign and other really public campaign will hire psychologists to like help them develop the color palette that they use because they're like, Oh, this is supposed to make you feel X, Y, and Z. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've worked on a few sites, including when we were launching the the podcast website. And oh, I yeah? was like, yeah. So I dig around at like what color palettes and I run into those things. Not that I base them off of that, yeah. but I'd run into those things all the time. And sure. my biggest thing is I just like to look for like interesting color palettes that I'm cool with for the next like uh, two to however many years sure. potentially. Um, but yeah, they're like, these ones will make your people feel this. I'm like, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of other ways in which they come to feel those sort of things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, we should dig into that much more deeply and especially go into the history of it. Yeah. But yeah, that's exactly the point I was making here is that those associations are developed through contact and experience. It's, they're not magically just, they're just there for everybody just waiting to be uncovered by interacting with a logo or a color palette. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, man, we've, I've been rambling on. Let's go ahead and take this home. Yes. All right. So take homes. We got a few of them here. Yeah. Get the first one. Yeah. I think so. One of the big take homes I wanted to make on this is at best, these projective tests, and I'm thinking about the Rorschach specifically, but these projective tests, they're a diagnostic tool that works fairly well, apparently for people who have sort of severe thought disorders. Um, however, that being said, it does seem like there are better tools that exist that do this. They're more systematic. They have those other criteria of a good test that we met. So this does seem to have some utility in being sensitive to that. Although there might be things that are better. So does it mean at best it's just a waste of time and money? I mean, maybe not at best. It's of that, but I mean, that is sort of where it's at. You know what I mean? It just seems like there are other things that exist that do it better. And this one is, it's just not making that meaningful of a contribution. So it's kind of a waste. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. All Interesting. Right. Yeah. I mean, like at some point we got to circle around and decide whether or not this is worth our time and money or not. Yeah. Right. Is it becoming a sunk cost? 
man, you're good at those <laughs> teasing upcoming episodes. All right. And at worst, so that's at best. I think at worst, it really over pathologizes people and also fails to accurately diagnose and get help to people who really need it. Like people who suffer from depression and anxiety and that sort of thing. And I think that another consideration in here is it tends to misrepresent what is possible out of psychological assessments by implying this sort of approach is even a approach that works, but also maybe even a more efficient or well-accepted one. So it's kind of causing a branding issue with psychology in general. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay. That's fair. Cool. I like those. Yeah. All right. So I think that to just sort of give my overall summary, I think that the, these projective tests are a category of tools um, that they can kind of be done away with. And I know, I know personally, a lot of people in the, in psychology who they use them and they like them. Um, there was a report done, I want to say in the aughts, like 2000s, maybe it was more recent than that, that said something like 80% of clinicians use these at some point or another in their practice, which is a huge Holy proportion, <laughs> more than I thought. But just doing the research, like it, this seems like this is a tool that doesn't really need to exist, it can be done away with, and that the forward motion of the world and of psychology more specifically um, really wouldn't miss it. It's sort of like, I was, I was trying to think of analogy because I, I like analogies. I think they're fun, but there are certain jobs that nobody has anymore because they are jobs that don't need to exist. And one I was thinking of was like back in the day when people would get whipped per, for punishment, they would have like a whipping boy. And so rather than the, the actual person who committed whatever thing they committed that they were deserving of punishment they would send their whipping board boy to be whipped in their place that's a job nobody should have yeah <laughs> it sounds know? horrible yeah so like this i is, thought whipping boy i just saw the show notes i thought it was gonna be like someone that's like putting whipped cream on the top of the milkshakes boy that would be that's a much better job <laughs> no there's people who yeah like, but it's also a job that's not necessarily needed yeah that's right fair. like a yeah. machine does that and people can do it on their own and, that's yeah. funny yeah no uh it's <laughs> Yeah, so my analogy on here is like that's an obsolete job that nobody needs to have that job of being a whipping boy. And uh, and so this this seems like one of those tools where it's like we have other things that do this better and this one kind of just lingers there. So I don't know. That, that was sort of my thought on this. I'm sure other people feel very differently. I'm happy to hear your feedback and your thoughts on that. So please write us in. Yeah, so I guess with that said, hate mail, appropriate comments. Love mail. Anything like that. Uh, send them along. Really interested what you guys have to say. I dropped those couple things on there for stickers. If you skipped ahead and you missed them, you're missing out on your chance for stickers. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I got. Okay. Thanks for your time. This is Ryan O. Abraham. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by ABAI's Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brucier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.